This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. In her memoir, Ilana Rowe weaves anecdotes, reflections, facts, poetry, dreams, and humor to chronicle her 11-year journey of supporting her husband, Hal, as they walk to the path of Alzheimer's together, hand-in-hand, heart-to-heart. Ilana shares her experience of being a care partner, facing her fears, sorrow, and vulnerability during this heartbreaking illness. Her stories reflect moments that sustain and teach her something new about compassion, kindness, renewal, acceptance, and patience. This love story is about making difficult decisions, arriving at a balance between caring for a loved one and self-care, and discovering deeper levels of meaning. It is laced with serendipitous experiences that transcend reason and logic. Valeria Tellis interviews Ilana Rowe, the author of Sacred Stories, A Caregiver's Journey Through Alzheimer's. Ilana Nancy Rowe is an educator, writer, and curriculum designer in the fields of transpersonal psychology, creativity, teacher education, and earth-based spirituality. She has also been a creative arts therapist and has led seminars and workshops on topics such as authenticity, spirituality, creative expression, connecting with the land, and imagination. She is currently semi-retired from professional life as a university professor, most recently at ITP Sophia University, and balances teaching with an active and creative life. Meet Ilana at IlanaRowe.com. Here's the interview with Ilana Rowe. In your own words, who is Ilana Rowe? A big question. <laughs> you know, I was born Nancy. I am Ilana now. I shifted that name. And it suits me very well because I'm a person who has been on a um, spiritual path as for as long as I can remember. I think my first uh, conscious awareness of that was at five years old. I feel like I am a seeker and a person who is a self-cultivator who also um in my work, my um, teaching job, I try to bring consciousness to my students and have them bring it out into their worlds too. So I think for me, I'm a person who um, I've been a seeker all of my life. I've been a, uh, a person who sees connectedness to the natural world and to beauty and, and to, and to uh, my first experience with under awareness that, um, that life was about love. It wasn't about the rules. It was about love, and it was about bringing love and and loving fully. So, 
I love that answer. <laughs> I love the idea, yeah, of uh, being open. There's another part of me who's just, you know, goes to work, teaches, loves that, you know, and does yeah. retreats. But that's the doing part. The being part is truly. Um, I love the idea of the natural, <clears throat> when you talk about the natural world relating to it, you actually call it earth-based spirituality. That resonates, it really resonates with me. But before that, I have a question for you. You mentioned I'm a seeker. So my question is, what have you been seeking? Well, all my life, you know, it's been seeking. Let me think. This is a very good question. I think it's seeking um, probably in part who I am most fully, who the world, you know, how I fit into the world. Um, um, the spirituality part of me is, you know, it's like, I just feel connected. I've been seeking, um, cause it's not a thing. It's seeking a thing. It's really a way of being in the world to me. It's about, um, you know, in my job, I, I work at, in the, at, um, in transpersonal psychology and the whole philosophy is, you know, to cultivate yourself and then bring it out to the world. And when I first connected with that 30 something years ago, I said, oh, my God, I want to do that the rest of my life. That job part of it is so much of who what I want to do and what I believe the world needs right now in this this at this time. Um, so. That's a hard question. What am I seeking? Nothing in particular, but everything. (laughs) The fullness of life, the aliveness of life. Um, And and it's not so much seeking anymore. It's more just being very aware of it when it arrives. What is love to you, Ilana? What is your idea of love? I think about personal love and I also think about um, more of a universal love. And I think about love for the earth and for the planet. And and I think um, um, when I think about with, with my husband, with his Alzheimer's, the, the, the whole idea of cultivating love for him is really became uh, fully accepting what was going on. So there's there's no simple answer to what is love. But there's a way of accepting the, if it's a person, the person, or if it's natural world, is this is the isness of the tree, let's say, the, and cultivating that, and hold, not cultivating it, but but really um, accepting that and and caring for that with tenderness and kindness. Not that anybody does that perfectly, but to, to strive towards being kind to our planet, being kind to to our people around us, whether we're connected with them in a, uh, a loving relationship or just a kindred relationship or even uh, somebody you don't get along with well, but just finding ways to be kind and, and compassionate. And um, I think kindness to me is the biggest thing with love is, I don't know, general love. Um, can you be kind to, to people, um, even when you don't agree with them? Right. You know. Um, That's a beautiful, honorable idea, practice to have. Do you believe in self-kindness and self-compassion, self-love as the foundation for giving love to others? 
That's a very interesting question because it goes in both directions. Sometimes you can give love and then you find self-love through the giving of love. And sometimes you develop your own self-love and then um, the giving of love becomes um, part of um, uh, part of the equation of reaching out. But I think it's a very dynamic thing um, where, um, you know, some people have a really hard time loving themselves fully or accepting, you know, but sometimes, but they can give to others, you know, they can go help others. And I think sometimes with that giving, they discover their own uh, ability to accept self too. So it's both mm-hmm. ways in my mind. Yeah, hey, I talk to a lot of people and I write about myself, self-love, self-compassion. And he always comes to me that it's not possible to love others without loving ourselves. But it seems like it is. We can begin by loving others and then kind of return to the self and, and appreciate the self from that perspective. Everything's possible, isn't it? And I, and I do believe that the biggest gift anybody can give another person is unconditional love, which is completely hard to give. But my husband was able to do that. And because he could do it with me, he helped teach me how to be out there for others in that unconditional way. I mean, not that I'm always like that, but but I, I have the ability to do that. And I and I and I am. I can do that now where I, because of him and his love of me, I was able to go and, and give to others. And that was such a big gift for me. I think it's the biggest gift uh, that anybody can give is unconditional love. And when you say unconditional, that's such a huge challenge for most of us, right? To kind of let go of results of whatever happens, it's okay. Can we really do that, Ilana, from your perspective? You said not all the time. I, it, it's ideal, I think, to me. And I think, I think if you've been on a path for a long time, yeah. you arrive at a place where it's easier eventually as you age. Right. You know, I don't think it happens <laughs> as a teenager or even a young adult sometimes. But I think... Um, I, I, I've known people who, who tend to be that way, and that uh, you know it's part of the developmental process to me. That um, um, I mean, I saw that with my husband, I, and it wasn't maybe to everybody, but he did. If he, you know, he, I felt that, and I couldn't, you know, it was a miracle. And I see people doing that with their children sometimes. So. It's an ideal, but I think the seekers drive towards the ideal and then you go baby steps towards it. Yeah. How would you describe today or redefine caregiving? Yeah. What does it look like for you today? Well, I, I don't think it looks one way. Right. I think everybody does it in their own way. Um, um, in my book, I talk about this, making the choice to, to use the word Alzheimer's. Not everybody does. But, you know, if some people decide they're not going to ever use that word. But, but it became a normalizing thing for me. And it, to be able to care for him, we both had to be able to use the word. So when something would happen, I would just say, well, you know, it's Alzheimer's. It's not you doing it. He would get upset because he would do something. It's not you doing it. It's really... Alzheimer's. And I termed the coin, coined the term, excuse me, hell on Alzheimer's. And then, you know, I could say, oh, it's just you on Alzheimer's. That's all it is. 
for me, that was caregiving. But for somebody else, and I write about this in my book, it was a hospice um, patient that I was you know, volunteering with, or you know, that I was taking care of, and they never told him he was dying. And I think he knew, um, but they were trying to protect him, and that was the way they cared for him. Um, and I and I was really touched by the differences in the way that I could never have done that. It was not the way I cared for somebody. For me, it was just being really, you know, trying to talk about it or um, make it part of this is our life now. But for other people, it's really about protecting. So there's no one way, I don't think. I think everybody becomes a caregiver when they have to in different ways. And everybody does the best they can, you know. Um, Yeah. I love that message. Yeah, we do the best we can. Right. So I'll be asking you more questions about your book in the moment, Ilana. Let me see. I have a few more of those warm up questions for you. I'll ask you this one. What do you think or feel is the purpose of the human experience? (laughs) Another hard question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I, you know, I actually have thought about that Mm -hmm. a little in relation to the students I teach. And part of the purpose, I don't think there is one purpose, but part of the purpose is to find out who you are and then bring that out into the world to really begin to shed away um, the, the parts of you that are not who you are over time, over your years, and then, and then bring that fullness of who you are into the world. Um, that's part of the purpose. That's the answer that comes to me right now. Um, it's the actualized person, you know, who, who, and I watch my students go through this. It's amazing. You know, they, they begin to discover themselves along the way. Um, and they've brought in a lot of self-discovery already, but then they begin to see how can I bring that experience into the parts of my life that where I contribute to life. And I feel like that's one of the many one of the important parts of, um, um, you know, of the human experience. And there's so many, I mean, there's loving, there's some, for some people it's having a family that they can, you know, bring up love fully so that the family can love fully. Uh, for others, there's pain that they have to learn from the pain. Yeah. But, I, but I think all of that feeds into, can you discover that essence of who you are? and heal it, transform it, and bring it out to the world. I love this idea too, this ideal. And my follow-up question is, how do we know when we come to find our essence? Are there some signposts, some ways of knowing that? Well, it's so interesting because I do write a little bit about this in my book in relation to to, to Alzheimer's. Um, but... Um, you know, the whole idea of, of uh, letting go of ego, I think that's a very misunderstood thing. And I talk about a friend of mine who ended up having a horrible form of cancer, and he began losing his body parts. And that was also a different way of looking at essence. Nice. You know, he, he was no longer able to speak, and he was such a profound speaker. You know, it was a hard thing. Um and he got to his essence in a funny, horrible sort of way, in a very painful way. Um, and, and so I don't think, I mean, the easy way to say, think about that is, oh, you become more fully alive and, you know, and, yeah. and 
more joy in life and all that. But then there's a part that has to do with the pain, like my friend and my, and my husband who, I mean, he always had his essence, I felt, right. you know, but, but mm-hmm. he couldn't do things and he couldn't remember things and he, and he, um, but the essence part of him, mm-hmm. that empathy for until he died, I couldn't believe it. There's a whole chapter about that, um, that he had uh, kindness and laughter, yeah. even though he didn't even know who he was. He didn't know who I was. Um, um, but he still had that essence. So mm-hmm. it's a question. I, 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 I don't want to pretend to know the answer, but I do mm-hmm. like, um you begin to see it in people's eyes. You begin to see the vulnerability and the heart connection. I think heart has a lot to do with essence. You you begin to shed so much thinking and, and combine the heart with the head more. I mean, that's an easy answer, but I mean, but a simple answer, but it's not the full answer. Do you see a difference between suffering and pain or they are all the same from your perspective? I see a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I have to think about that because yeah. I mean I do see a difference. To me, suffering yeah. there's every we all suffer, yeah. And there's some suffering that if we could just hold it in a different way, we wouldn't have so much suffering, you know. Um, and 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 I think I feel like suffering is so much part of the human condition, but we can frame it in such a way that we can hold our suffering as, oh, well, like I, I use these terms. Well, it's your turn now. Yeah, right. <laughs> so we're all suffering, but, and somebody <laughs> has a lot of suffering. Well, I mm. guess it's your turn to go through the suffering now. And I feel like sometimes when, when I suffer, I go, oh, it's just my turn. I just I just have to look at it and hold it and, and let it go. You know, um, I think pain, I think of pain much more physically, really. Yeah. Um, then I think suffering is I think pain more is more, I don't think of pain as emotional as much as suffering is more emotional, but that's my lens into it. Yeah. It makes sense to me. Yeah. Pain relating to the body, the physical body and, and suffering to emotional, psychological, um, kind of ideas, stories about everything else, labels, you know, the perspectives. Yeah, that resonates true. And two more questions for you before we end the warm-up questions. What is healing to you? And what are some of the misconceptions we have about healing? Yeah, great questions. <laughs> so, healing to me, well, um, I mean, it's almost easier for me to say, what are the misconceptions first? Misconceptions is that healing will take away all the pain. And it'll take away um, all the discomfort and the body falling apart and all that. I don't don't feel like that's true. I think think the biggest misconception is it'll all go away when you heal. But I think healing is becoming in relationship with the sadness, the pain, if we want to call it, or suffering – Getting into a relationship so where there's more acceptance and that it soothes the soul. And we could see it as part of the, the like Ram Dass used to say, the grist for the mill, you know. We could more as part of life working us at this time. Um, and, um, yeah, and so a healing is moving towards a comfort regardless of the suffering. Mm. 
Yeah, that sounds wonderful to me if we can do that. Freedom. What is your idea of freedom? What is to be free? Oh, it's so interesting. <laughs> no, I, this was a high school question when I was in high school. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, and that was like in the in the sixties. So it was like we were talking about freedom back then. Um, so um, it's another big word. Um, what does it mean to be free, and what is freedom? Um, boy, it's a hard question. Um, because I think, first of all, of my personal freedom, you know, and then I think of the many people in the world who are suffering, who are not free, who are um, in somewhat, um, you know, they're being, they're not free for a variety of social and cultural, emotional reasons. Um, so I'm just going to take a bigger answer and say, uh, to me, there's no freedom until we're all free. Personal freedom take comes with responsibility of using it well, but um, but I don't think we're I don't think there's freedom until until until, until the world is more free, in the sense of um, so many different kinds of sufferings and um, pain. Or I may not have the freedom. Then if, uh, I mean even just a little relative money, you know, makes a big difference and. And, and I'm not talking about spending. I'm talking about the opportunities to express yourself even. Um, I don't have money to to just hang out for a little bit to express myself through whatever modality. Then, um, then I don't get to have that freedom. But if I have that little time, I could have more. You know, not, not that money makes a difference, but poverty makes a difference. If you're, if you're in terrible conditions. Oh, wow. I never heard it that way. I love how refreshing your answers are. Well, yeah, poverty makes a difference, right? A huge difference, whether you get to be free or not. Not that and somebody who's poor doesn't get to be free sometimes, but it, in general, yeah. Do you believe that we have chosen to be here and go through the challenges we went through or go through? You know, that's such an interesting metaphysical question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not a physical you know, it is. <laughs> did we choose our lives? Did we choose this experience? Um, it's so hard for me to answer that and really feel like I can answer that with truth. Um, I, 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 in some level, yeah. Um, I, I don't know because that gets to a whole lot of other issues, not issues, you know, like, um, um, you know, things that I imagine, but I am not, I, I can't say without a doubt that uh, I chose this life. Perhaps the universe in some of its infinite wisdom said, this is the life that will be really good for you, right? And if you don't do this life, you know, you're going to progress. So, you know, so it may be a co-creation. I don't know. As of today, do you have a spiritual philosophy or belief system? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> my, I mean, my whole life is about spirituality. But, it, it, you know, as I, you know, there's been so many, you, like, there's so many ways to look at that. Um, and I'm looking at it more generally than, than in terms of a, a particular practice. Um, I've come to finally 
recognize that no matter what path you've chosen, because um, I've been through a variety of paths in my life, um, it, to me it boils down to loving kindness. Can you hopefully, can you be kind to others? Can you be compassionate? Can you hold others in your heart? Not that we all do this, but can we strive to do this? Can we can we recognize when we don't do this and then go, oh, own that you didn't do this and how do you trust? So to me, that's part of the concrete spiritual path. I mean, you know, um, and certain things help you. For some people, it's a certain way of meditation. Or for me, being out in nature, if I need that connection, I go out to the natural world, you know, um, is, is where I find the most connection with spirit. Um, so, and I think everybody finds their own path. For some people, it's singing, you know. Yeah, right. So, yeah. For some mysterious reason, it comes natural. It's something natural that happens. I mean, at least for me, it has been. Going back to that, always asking those questions, am I being loving and kind today? to whomever in my experience i talk about in my book a little bit what i found and this is one of the biggest things that was so important to me that i found that some of the pe people who were most present to me on my journey through alzheimer's through caregiving my husband were people i didn't necessarily agree with about life things we might have been physically different or we might have been you know um, had different paths but some of those people were the kind were the they were the most kind to me during this journey and were there for me during my journey and it was I felt like wow you know we never talked about these other things that we didn't agree with but they were just were there they were present they were kind and I found that to be such a huge lesson for me such a gift you know that people just took care you know they helped that that part of the journey yeah you wrote the book, Sacred Stories, A Caregiver's Journey Through Alzheimer's. Talk to me for a moment about the main inspiration and the intention of writing this book. Well, um, and I write about this in the prelude. Um, I was, you know, living with Alzheimer's is so tough. And there, you are constantly on. You're constantly aware of everything around you, keeping the person safe, making sure they get dressed, making sure they get fed, you know, at certain stages. It doesn't start that way. It develops that. Right. And, and one day, this is my inspiration. One day, um, I, I was trying to get him dressed and it was four hours later. I was still trying to get him dressed and I, and it wasn't going to happen. He was sitting on his bed and, um, and, and, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And I had a job to do and I had to go do my job and, and I couldn't do it. And at some moment, um, I decided to put my hands out like I always did when we were on the street and I, and I said, well, come with me or something like that. It was some, and, and he came and he looked, he, and he put his arms out, both arms. And he said, Oh, and he got up and he started working, walking towards me. And I, and he said, you are my fairy godmother. <laughs> And his eyes lit up like he'd seen an angel. And I went, and all of a sudden, all the angst and Alzheimer's just disintegrated. And he had a big smile on his face. And I had a big smile on my, my face. And I began to realize um, that, wow, I have to write something. That was the moment. I have to write about 
those sacred moments that happen, even in the middle of such a horrible, horrible, hard journey, that there, that there are moments, and actually many, and you can begin to walk the path of holding that person with Alzheimer's and not thinking about all the bad parts, but recognizing some of the beautiful parts. And so that, that's when I started writing. But my book came to me so often during my dreams, you know, um, where um, I'd wake up from a dream or I'd wake up with a song in my head and I would say, now, what am I supposed to write this morning? It was always two in the morning. This would happen. And I began writing the chapter and then eventually the chapter kind of formed into a book and then it took four, it took its, um, it, its right order. But, um, the inspiration, I didn't know what it was at first. I just knew I had to write this, these stories, these sacred stories. And um, I worked with a writing coach a little bit. And she said, now, what is the story really about? <laughs> I said, I think it's just about living with Alzheimer's. No, no, no. The real thing underneath the living with Alzheimer's. Oh, my God. It's like about a relationship. It's about relationships. And that's really what the story was about. It's a love affair. It's about the love affair that can happen during Alzheimer's. In the book, you say living day by day with Hal is a sacred commitment. It is eternal and it is a gift to him, to myself and to our relationship. You mentioned that's very clear. Talk to me about Hal before Alzheimer's. Oh. And how did you meet I, <laughs> briefly? <laughs> I have a picture of him in front of me as I'm talking to you because, yeah. because this really was, you know, our story together. So he's with me. He was such a wonderful man. He was always a kind, funny man. He was a superintendent of schools, but he didn't do it like a type B. He like had this guitar. He would sing to his teachers. He would, he had philosophy. He could write. He always, he always was writing quotes. You know, I, I brought spirituality to him in a concrete form. Um, I mean, not, you know, and, but he was always going to these workshops and taking, taking it all in, writing it all down and growing and growing and growing. So he was a lovely man like that. And he was just such a good hearted man. And, um, as he got Alzheimer's, it you know he began to lose his ability and he, he to do many of those things. But he still had his humor and he still laughed. You had to look at it through a different lens, though. He would make these incredibly hysterical jokes, but you had to recognize it as part of the Alzheimer's, the way he talked in Alzheimer's. And so, um, um, it, it would just—I was always laughing, but I had to recognize that. This was through the lens of Alzheimer's. Yeah. Like when he would go to, a, he went in, we were in a store once and he saw this woman. Yeah. He did, and, he, and she was very still, I guess. And he says, are you a mannequin? You know? oh. <laughs> and yeah. I, oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. Yeah. Like, and then she just said, well, why? Yes, I am. <laughs> it's almost like being a child, isn't it? Just very curious about everything. I mean, I don't know what that is like and Alzheimer's. And I have a few more questions for you about that, if you don't mind, Elana. Alzheimer's, what is it and what are the causes and prevention, treatments? What are some of the information you can disclose today for those who are facing this issue? I am not really an expert in Alzheimer's. Yeah. 
um, at per se, but I would say if you were going through that um, as a caregiver and as um, and to support your your person in your life who has Alzheimer's, I would very much connect with support groups so that you that da- that information can be made known more to you so you could begin to normalize not that it's ever normalized but they could begin to recognize um what you have to do to take care of yourself and to take care of the person who has alzheimer's i would hook i would hook up with the alzheimer's organization and find out where the supports groups are and there's some wonderful websites um on um you know, that you can tap into. Um, and I did that myself for a while. And then there's help out there that you may not know about. Like I found this help that um, it was pre-hospice help that I could get for him with Alzheimer's. Um, that, and that this might be just part of my community. But there was, um, you know, there's things that can help you. I found that I got some grants. So when I had to leave, I could put him somewhere or support, have financial support for it. Um, you'll find out about things like, if, with these support groups, about the legal aspects and, you know, things like that. Um, um, I, in terms of how is it caused, I mean, it's different ways. It's, a, it's basically, uh, and I am not a medical person, but there's like plaques that's building up. But on a metaphor, metaphorical level, this is how I thought of it. I thought of it as, you have a lot of light switches in your brain and one by one they begin to turn off. And that helped me to understand as he would progress and something no longer worked. I thought I I would say, Oh, the light switch turned off now for the part. And and it wasn't quite as, you know, cut and dry as that, but I can, it, it helped me to think of it metaphorically, psychologically, um, relationally, um, that's, I knew that in life and I could hold him in that way. Um, and then I'd let the groups teach me the rest. That's helpful. So we can find information online, uh, support groups. That's always, it's always a great, great suggestion. Now in my book, I will say I have, I did list all those. I listed a lot of those and I, for people, I felt like that, you know, that's where they could get some help. That's um, wonderful to know that you have also the information in your book. So anyone who is going through the same situation, similar situation, you can find not just the technical information, but inspiration. I love the way you call the stories in the book sacred. That is really, truly beautiful. There's a passage in your book where you say, I learned to accept him hell and my own humanness more fully. It has allowed me to surrender to what is and to love more unconditionally, to serve him in unselfish ways. I learned to give love and to recognize love through simple smiles. It taught me to simply live in the moment and accept life as it is. The journey with Alzheimer's transformed me. Beautifully written, beautifully, profoundly said in the sense of of seeing what is beneath suffering or pain and transformation in the end. So when it comes to that being the result, per se, of what he went through, how would you describe that kind of transformation? What did that feel like after going through what you went through, Milana? 
my own transformation. Yeah. How did you transform? What was like to transform through the things that you experienced? Wow. Oh, I have to think about that. Um, I think about a line in the preface that I actually um, borrowed from a friend of mine. And I, when I asked him, I said, he he lost his wife to cancer and took care of her for 10 years. And I said, um, do you feel like you've grown and transformed through your experience of caregiving? And he said, um, taking care of her made me, without a doubt, a better person. I told him I was going to use that line because I, I said, yes, exactly. That's exactly how I feel. I use that line in my book with his permission, of course, because um, it did. And um, it's not about Alzheimer's or cancer. It's about are you willing to maintain that sacred contract in some way? How are you willing, if you're growing all your life and somebody has something like that, that you're suddenly caregiving, it doesn't, you don't stop, you keep growing. And with Alzheimer's, it was exhausting. I mean, it was, <laughs> it's completely exhausting. But you began to, to um, listen to your own body and what you needed and you began to take care of yourself and to pay attention, not surrender your own your own needs for the needs of somebody else. So you have so every time my body would hurt more, I would get a little bit more help. And I didn't have long term health insurance, so that was I couldn't just do it whenever. I had to say, okay, my body is really hurting. Um, I need to move. I mean, I moved from um, New York down to Sarasota because I got a, basically got a concussion. I said, I think it's time to move and get, go to a place where there's more help. So you began to listen to yourself and, 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 and begin to take care of yourself and as you're taking care of the other person. And at some point, like when I had to put him in a home, which I never thought in my imagination that I ever could do, um, Somebody's told me, you know, this is part of it, the part of the illness, because I could no longer. I knew I probably would die if I didn't make that next step. And so I, I found him a, a perfect place for him. But um, but I had to do that. And, and I had to do that so that I because I, have, I read a whole chapter about like a huge percent of caregivers die before their person they're taking care of. You know, it's a it's the stats on that are just uh, crazy. So, so finding the balance um, between taking care of somebody else and taking care of ourselves is really important. In your book, you also mentioned something that I, I found. I love the questions you raise. Uh, you said, I remember my mantra that guided me in my decision-making process. Is it compassionate to him? Is it compassionate for me? So asking these questions will help to make that decision. We're almost at the end, Elana, but I also love, I want to mention the, um, what he wrote. This was the wedding poem. You touch me in my mind, in my heart, in my soul. I am you loving me, loving you. No, you are going to make me cry. <laughs> Beautiful. I love that. I love this poem. <laughs> like, wow. He was like a much better writer yeah. for our wedding. You know, it's like he... Um, uh, it was so interesting when I was looking what to put there. I wanted to write a poem. I started with my poem, and then I found his. I went, "Oh my God, no!" <laughs> he, 
he, this is says it for both of us really and it was um yeah a beautiful moment um yeah. yeah, beautifully said, profoundly said. I am in you, loving me, loving you, right? That's highly spiritual from my perspective. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much, Ilana, for doing the work you did, still doing, passing this on, this legacy, not just of hope, but wisdom, but profound wisdom. Thank you. And before we end, I would like to ask you a few more questions, two more questions. But before that, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? Um, I would read a passage. I wasn't sure until right now which passage I would read. It's uh, somewhat short, which is good. Um, but it's And it's a simple one. It's not a, a heavy one. It's called Gazing at the Mountain, this particular chapter. And I'll read just part of it because I used to go to this wonderful um, new age bookstore that um, that supported us basically allowed us to sit on their porch and we would go there and I'd look at the books and sometimes I'd leave them there and run to town you know and down the street while they kind of watched him and um, so here this was like a simple very simple realization at, at sort of towards the beginning of our Alzheimer's experience one day, Hal and I sat on the porch surrounding Mirabai, the name of the store in Woodstock, New York. Give it a plug. <laughs> people walking by. I sat at the far end with a woman who was a seer, a, an intuitive. We were both watching Hal as he gazed out. She bent over and whispered, look at him. He is very happy just sitting there, just being. He doesn't require talk or conversation. He is happy sitting quietly and gazing out. I looked, and oh my, yes, it was so true. He sat with a contented smile on his face, happy to be part of the place with us, and still alone with no angst about connecting, about connecting, let me say it again, with no angst about connecting, feeling comfortable sitting in the sun and just watching. She then said, I have friends who I do this with. We can sit for hours without conversation, just enjoying each other's companies. This was a huge lesson for me. I began to pay attention to, to take stock. I began to notice that in our sanctuary in the country, Hal would spend time on the porch, just gazing at the mountain, enjoying our dog. He seemed peace, peaceful and happy and seemed to open more to the beauty around him. Sometimes he would read, but mostly he would simply gaze. I learned that I didn't have to do anything. He could come to dinner with me and a friend, and he was content simply to be there enjoying the company. And then I talk a little bit more. But this, um, these moments, I'll just skip a little bit. I dropped expectations and I, that I had a more talkative social partner as in earlier years. I learned to appreciate him for who he was now, a man who enjoyed being with others, sometimes with words, sometimes without words. Those quiet moments were quite beautiful. It was akin to being at the beach and taking in the sun while sitting next to a friend without conversation. I love that too. Just being in the moment, becoming the moment really, isn't it? Simply being life itself. And what I learned from that was don't expect 
my expectation of him. Watch what he, what he's doing. You know, for me, yeah. you know, everybody's trying to make conversation, teach him this, teach him that. Right. And in reality, it was like, look, he just likes sitting there. Don't teach him anything. Don't correct him. Just let him sit there. Let him enjoy. That was really big in the earlier stages. Yeah. Two more questions, the ending questions. I'll ask you this one. What is another word for healing? Like self-healing, you mean? Yeah, it could be self-healing. Yeah. yeah. Acceptance. Acceptance for what is and gratitude for what is. And my last question is, what are three things about life you know for sure as of this moment? Oh, nice Oprah question. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, sure. Uh, well, it goes back to my first realization at five. It's all about love. It's all about love. It's all about kindness. It's all about gratitude. I think, I think, I think love, kindness, and gratitude is what feeds the soul, feeds the spirit, feeds the universe, you know, um, and not just for people, but also for nature. Um, Thank you so much for your presence here on this podcast, presence in the world, making this reality a more peaceful one and your wisdom. Thank you so much for everything you do, the way you do it. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much. And before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? So my book is on Amazon. You have to spell it Sacred Stories, A Caregiver's Journey Through Alzheimer's. And and you have to spell my name right to find it. But you can find it there. Um, that's where you can find my book. And I'm developing my website and it'll be ready very soon so it'll be alana it, it is alana Rowe.com. the work that i do with sophia university can be found on that but but i guess today i'm focusing on the book so it's it's on it's um it's on amazon um that's that's the place to find it um and my website which again will be up very very shortly thank you so much again alana and we'll talk soon bye for now well, thank you Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Alana Rowe and her work, please visit IlanaRowe.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.